Welcome to Scores and Bores, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. On today's show, we're going to talk about too much. When is too much too much? We're going to talk about that regarding some elements of wine, when oak is too much, and so forth. And Emily's going to talk about just when a composition has too much of things. Yeah, and the choices may surprise you, may anger you. We'll find out. We'll find out. And obviously, these are very subjective. Of um, course, of course. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution for a lot of money. Yeah. Or as little as $1 a month on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash scores and pours. There you'll definitely find a full playlist and a wine list. Hi, Jill Mott. I just wanted to figure out how I could be like, too much. <laughs> when is too much too much? Hello, Emily Reese. Too much. The problem, well, it's not necessarily a problem, but it is very subjective now, isn't it? Yes. This is all about, I mean, obviously, scores and pours is a lot of Emily and my opinion. Yeah. Our opinions about topics and then laced with a lot of truth to try to back up our arguments, right? Mm -hmm. But this is like... Really subjective. Super subjective. Um, I'm going to talk about some elements, uh, some different compounds and different treatments and different ways that wine can present itself that I think is when you have too much of what could could have been a good thing. And Yeah, and I'm going to talk about uh, two and then sort of three, but two symphonies that I think are too much. One of which is one of my favorite pieces in the whole world. So there you go. It's like even there too much can reach even into your favorite thing. And we didn't really know how to how to capture this because in terms of what to drink because yeah. here's the story. Yeah. Months ago, we were just buying wine that you know for certain topics like we had a, you know, a topic on bad sparkling wine and CO2 injection and you know, not natty wine, super conventional wine, bought those wines, dumped them out. Yeah. We're not we're cooked with them or whatever, right? But, a little of both, yeah. So, we're, but the thing is, is let's be honest, people. Pony up. We have had, thankfully, <laughs> a few new patrons yeah. in the last few weeks. So, thanks to those people who are donating. But we were like, man, we just shouldn't be spending money to dumb stuff down the drain. Sometimes, yeah. yes, but today we just wanted to drink something good. I think too. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, her her point being that we didn't want to drink wine that had too much this or too much that we just wanted to drink good stuff we will taste one beer that i think has a little bit too much of something but there's a podcast that i really like that i want to just like do a shout out to her name is lucia or lucia solis s-o-l-i-s and she talks about she's a winemaker come fermentation specialist regarding coffee and she says life is too short to drink bad coffee I highly recommend her podcast, but I think life is too short to drink bad wine or bad beer, mm -hmm. and not that it's not in our best interest to taste those sometimes on the show or taste them, you know, out in life. A hams up north once in a while can, you know, give you gut rot, but can be a fun experience, I guess, <laughs> and add to your repertoire. And so, but just on the show today, it's 45 degrees in Minneapolis and it's September. Mm, Let's yeah. just drink good things today Let's drink is good what things. we decided. And it's also, too, you you will frequently mention your liver. Like, it's hard on your liver to have alcohol, so why not make sure that when you're drinking it, it's delicious? Th yes, thank you for that, mm -hmm. because on the show, 
I think it took like four shows or something and on and off, like I'll spit, right? If I yeah. know I want to go on a run later, I do that. Yeah, I'll spit. But sometimes on scores and pours, we don't spit. Let's be yeah. honest. Well, the majority e- of the time we don't spit. I almost never spit. So yes, you're right. The liver is precious. Drink good things. Let's just start out with some thick music. Yes, let's do that. So I'm going to share with you a symphony that Peter Tchaikovsky wrote at late 1800s, and it's his fourth symphony, and it's a delightful symphony. It's really wonderful, but I've uh, often had many complaints about it. I think the first movement is too long, so too much there. I think the remaining three movements are too short, except the fourth movement is just too much of everything, and I never want to hear it again. Is delightful the right word? Well, it's heavy. Okay. So it's... Because <laughs> <laughs> I... <laughs> She's so totally right. She's totally right. I know you don't want to like... I know like, you don't want to... Like, how it starts. This isn't how it starts. <laughs> So here's the, here's here's my my argument is that delightful to me means yeah a light white wine on a spring day no let it play yeah okay or maybe some tea and crumpets <laughs> not the, not I mean more. good yes of course I didn't even want to trash it because it's it's beautifully written and oh it's very amazing. powerful oh it's so great and I don't object to any of this this is fabulous music I. Bring it on, brass. I don't think that's too much anything. But right I guess, there. but you said this, you, in your opinion, is it, is it the subject matter or is it the fact that the first movement is around 19 minutes long and then the rest the, are less than 10? The, the, the first movement is longer than the last three. And so one of the things that I remember the very first time I ever listened to this symphony, I didn't, ha- I didn't have a digital picture. Of, I had like, a, a, I don't remember if it was a tape or a CD or how I listened Just to it. Just say a cassette. Yeah, it was probably, I'm awesome. sure it was a cassette, but I had no idea that the first movement was 20 minutes long-ish, you know? And when you hear it and you're listening to it, you're like hunkering down mm-hmm. for a ride. A delightful one. A delightful one. <laughs> always just completely shocked me then that that intensity didn't continue. It, let me rephrase that because there, there's intensity in each movement I, I concede wholeheartedly, but the fact that in terms of length and depth really, uh, the, the rest of the movements don't explore things the way I expected them to after I heard that first movement. You, you know what the, I mean? Do you think, was that like do you happen to know if that was purposeful or wh- like why it is the way it is, or was it just like it just is the way it is? Okay, there was no. I wonder yeah, if no, you'd ever I read like he, why like, did it on purpose or okay. any, anything like that. And and again, the second movement of the symphony is one of the most beautiful things you'll ever hear in your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just absolutely gorgeous. Um, Can we listen to that? Well, yeah, that doesn't fit in with our too much category, but we can totally listen to it yeah, for just a little a, palate just a little, refresher. Yeah, let's do that. Because yeah. then we'll pal- refresh our palates with some wine that tastes good before we go into too much. Yeah, I, I mean, this symphony is beautifully Russian. The the themes, I mean, Tchaikovsky, just master uh, uh, melody writer, you know, he could just write the most beautiful 
melodies and 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 he was also really good at writing in I think in triple meter so one two three one two three one two things like that and it's just the best it's the best so in um, your opinion in your opinion the Tchaikovsky Symphony number no. four in F minor just to to specify yeah what's too much about it is the first movement being almost longer than the following three put together yeah, that's annoying. And then the fourth movement is too much of everything. Oh, okay. Let's it's, listen to that. It's let's so listen to that. Let's loud. Listen to that. Well, you wanted to hear the second movement, so let's get to the good part at oh, least. Okay. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. That's beautiful. We'll come back to that someday on Scores and Pours, definitely. So do we Do we want to listen to the movement number four? Where oh, you said it's yeah. just too the much fourth, of... The fourth movement. I, uh, I wish I could just go in the next room when I hit play. <laughs> Cymbals crashing. Everybody's just grinding. I think what I hate the most about this movement, because this isn't bad, this delightful little woodwind. See, delightful. It's delightful. Little romp. Little romp with Mm -hmm. the woodwinds. Great. I could do without all the crashing cymbals and all the just furtive browed. They just, it always sounds like uncomfortable because it's so fast, you know? I mean, just imagine hearing, like, you had a few too many the night before, and then you turn on the radio and this comes blasting out. Wouldn't you want to just chuck the radio across the room? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, I was trying to make time on a run today. I was trying to have like an under, I'm a very slow runner, and trying to have like an under nine minute mile. And I looked at my watch and realized like I got to start sprinting. And maybe that's <laughs> what it reminds me of. Like, yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I got you. Yeah. I got you. I agree. So I mean, I love it, but I agree. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Listen to this, this when you like great. wake up and take the bull by the horns kind of morning, but not when you wake up after too many exactly. or whatever. If you want to be running with the bulls behind you perfect this is the one for you got you well before i start talking about too much it's funny i'll tell you what we're sipping on emily and i because we are nipping on a really pretty wine from a producer in portland oregon who gets wines from kind of up and down the coast barnaby tuttle and plays the tuba and plays the tuba. We've had his wines on the show a couple times, but he's got a endeavor. Barnaby Tuttle has a uh, endeavor called Teutonic Wine Company, and he makes a wine he calls Helveti from a grape, Viognier. And the reason that it's fun and that we're, we're choosing this to drink is Viognier is usually a grape that is yeasted, meaning packeted yeasts added to it. It's usually done, a lot of times it's done in 
oak, and so it's thick, and it's vanilla-y, and it's just a lot of, like, very lanolin, like, textured, oily, and then a ton of floral aromas. So imagine, like, Gewurz, make it thicker, make it oaky, and it's just a flabby mess that's gross. <laughs> and this is a great, a really fun thing to sip on because, you know, the color, you get a little bit of that verging on a light light golden hue that we find with Viognier. That's very common. But the nose has just that softest touch of, like, iris or, you know, like a little bit Flowery. of... A little bit of dandelion, a little cotton, a little... But it's not like all of those in a perfume bottle, you know? Yeah, no, it's much more floral than perfumey. I mm-hmm. think, yeah, very naturally floral, you know. And just the subtlest amount of, like, cream, it would almost be like if a panna cotta was spiked with a little lavender or something, you know, like it's it's, it's a little bit creamy because he only ferments and ages in old oak, and so that... All his wines. All of them. So that adds, once in a while the rosé doesn't, but so that adds just the smallest element of, like, that roundness, but it's not like this over-oaked mess, which is a perfect segue for me to talk about oak. <laughs> okay, hold on. I need a sip because oak just a lot of oak pisses me off. Hold on. Me too. Mm. A little twenty nineteen fresh, nice work, Barnaby. Like light to medium bodied. Kind I of love it. Kind of like somewhat bright acidity for Viognier that's known to be sometimes a little bit like higher pH, meaning lower acid. Mm. Okay, so here's my here's let's start talking about oak. Yeah, oak is a vessel to age or ferment wine, and. When you have a new oak vessel, I mean, oak can be a couple hundred years old, and it can be brand new. And when it's brand new, you have to waste a lot of water to leach the flavor out of it so that you get as little oak as possible flavors in your wine when you go to put your wine in it. You're basically like seasoning the barrel with water pre-harvest, okay? And... Go ahead. Then why pick because, oak? Because it would be too oaky. You'd be no, like- No, but why Why not just pick a different tree wood? Well, because you want to- I'll, I'll get there. Okay. I'll get there. Because so, I know there are others. We've talked about acacia. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get sure, there. Okay. So, and you have to clean it with like a sulfur wick or something, which is an ant, can be an antioxidant. You can pressure wash it to, to stain it, or excuse me, to clean it. And what producers can do is they can, you know- if they want to use and need to use a new oak barrel because they want to bring it into their barrel regimen, let's say they have uh, 50 barrels and they need to buy a new one, they might make a, a wine that has 10% new oak and the rest is old oak. Or maybe it's 10% new oak and the rest is stainless steel. And so you can hardly tell the oak. You know, it's there, but it's not prevalent. And you know, sometimes people will then after two or three years, it gets ushered into the barrel regimen where it, you know, they can say this is my wine that's made in 100% old oak because they're all three years or older, or five okay. years or older or whatever. Okay. And oak is chosen because it is less, it's usually considered less intrusive when it's newer. But I, I kind of think it really depends on where, when you compare it to other wood like chestnut and acacia and redwood. And what's interesting about that is to kind of just to answer your question, I've never had a wine that I thought, oh my gosh, that's too much redwood or oh, that's too much chestnut because people are either using like 
old chestnut barrels that they've gotten from their grandparents or whatever, or if they have an, uh, an acacia barrel, they just don't have this vanilla component that oak has and, and vanillin, which vanillin is like when you smell vanilla, there's a lot of compounds that we can smell. But the one that specifically makes anyone be able to go, oh, that's vanilla, mm-hmm. is a compound called vanillin that is has been synthesized out, okay? So I just use vanillin because it's like way more potent in my mind than vanilla. But so these are aldehydes, so class of organic compounds that we can smell. And when you use 100% new oak in your wine and that's all you're using, so I'm gonna make this wine and I made three barrels and they're all 100% new oak. It's like all you taste is oak. So in my tasting notes, when I taste a wine like that, and I don't even have to know what it is, I write oak in all caps, and then I just write no. Like it's just like, <laughs> because, and, and think of this, a new oak barrel from a good French cooper, a barrel producer, can be between 700 euros and say 1,200 euros back when I was working in a, in a winery that bought them. And who's going to pay for that? That winemaker's not going to end up paying for that. That's <laughs> going to be you and me that end up paying for that, right? Yeah. So in the end, your $30 wine might be, oh, now $35 or $38 because this person's trying to pay for their, you know, however many new barrels they're buying this year. Yeah. So it ends up being, and then your fruit, if you're being like, oh, I really want this beautiful Viognier, let's say, from from or from the west western reaches of Oregon, We'll go layer that, go slather that in some new oak. And what, what do we have? <laughs> I like to call it Chateau two by four, which means like <laughs> all I smell is vanilla yeah. and I don't smell flowers and I don't smell cotton and I can't even really get, because it just like leaches into the staves and pulls out all that. And if you taste water that you will, because I've seasoned barrels before okay. and you put that water in your mouth, you're like... Now I got to go fill up that barrel with 225 liters more of water. Wow. Awesome. To go try to leach more flavor. So anyway, new barrels, yes, they're more hygienic in some ways, sometimes. But like I would much rather buy older barrels from trusted people because they don't. I just think it's, that's not even, that's an aside. Yeah. Too much oak, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. is gross. It can ruin a wine. I, you, you know, I love white wine. I love all wine, but white special wine. Love it. But if it's oaky, I don't want it. It ruins it. I'm just like, ugh. Yeah. Ugh. It's like the only time I don't like natty white wine is if it's too oaky. And that's like kind of rare. I mean, it happens, but yeah, we've yeah, got a couple happened. of them. Yeah. So that's my, that's one of my pet peeves is too much oak in a wine, too much new oak. Yeah. In a wine. And of course, doesn't it differ between country or continent where you get the oak, right? You can have American oak, you can have European yeah, oak. Yeah, great and Slavonian oak from Croatia, Whoa. for sure. And there are and a couple other places, most definitely, and that's a great point. American oak tends to yield more vanilla notes than French oak. So if you have a wine and you put half of it in a filled up brand new French oak barrel and a new American oak barrel and you taste them, the tannins are going to be like higher and it's going to be way more vanilla laden in the American oak barrel, which is, some people love that, but it's sort of like, well then go pay for 
oak water. Yeah. Why are you paying for fruit oak, you know, or <laughs> wine oak, whatever? Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, what are what are now now grace me. Grace me with too much of something audible, please. So one of my all-time favorite pieces in the world is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. This comes up from time to time on Scores and Pours, so... Every other episode, just kidding. Pretty, not really. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> it's pretty much. <laughs> and uh, it's funny because we've still never really done an actual episode on it because I feel like I bring it up so much and we use it so much for other things that I can't... You know, anyway. It's probably... I actually probably say I don't like new oak and wine every other episode, so it's okay. Ah, we're just like, enough. we're just covering bases we're today. It's perfect. covering our bases. That being said that it's literally one of my favorite pieces. I think it's brilliant. I think the end is a little too much. The end goes on just a little too long. And the reason why I would even stick my neck out on such a criticism is because Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is way longer, way more epic in scope than the Fifth, and it ends appropriately, I think. I think the end of the Ninth Symphony matches what's happening, musically speaking, leading up to it. But Beethoven's Fifth, it just kind of goes on and on, and you're like, all right, buddy, I get this is awesome. We're in this triumphant ending because one of the, you know, cool things about that symphony is it starts in minor, and everything's in a minor mode until the last mo movement, and then we're suddenly we're in C major. So it's like tragedy to triumph. And okay. uh, so it's very triumphant. The last movement is fantastic, but the last, you know several measures are devoted to ending and we could have just we could just get over it you know so let's let's like listen. how many measures would you say don't i mean yes don't even guess but like how long in time is it a couple just minutes like <laughs> okay yeah Jeez. that's not accurate it's probably more like a minute but it maybe it's, it seems like it's maybe it's, it but but that's a good point because if you if it seems like a yeah. minute but it's really only 30, 20 seconds, that's the thing about yeah. too much oak, for example, and, and things I'm going to talk about later. When they distract from, it's like friends yeah. that, like, I love the English language, I love languages, and I love vocabulary, but it's like friends that talk to you like they just knew, like, learned seven new words, yeah. and they want to all fit them into new sentences. Yes. It's like, a, I think, a great uh, metaphor for this whole, you know, this whole episode is, like, when they distract from the, for, yeah. from the greater composition or in in the yeah. case of wine you know to it you're getting away from the fruit in the vineyard yeah. and it's just focused on vessel in I that mean, case and there are many examples of this in classical music of you know symphonies that don't seem to end uh, you know Shostakovich has a couple that people mention i mean um, some, some, so it's, it's not too terribly uncommon. And so I think the reason I bring this up is because the rest of the symphony to me is such a shining jewel of perfection. So are we going to listen to just the end of it? Yeah, we'll listen just to okay. the end. Cause, <laughs> I'm very cause I mean, it's, it's definitely long enough so that you're like, okay, buddy. Okay, buddy. I'm way more yeah, excited right. to listen to this than to drink <laughs> wines with all these too much. No, exactly. Right, too much attributed to the, the end, the very end of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony.
he's bringing back themes from earlier movements, which I love. Kind of all bringing it, wrapping it all up. The piccolo, first time he ever used piccolo. Yeah. You hear it now? Right now, just to give you all an idea, in this we're at like thirty some seconds. There's from still the thirty end. seconds left. Yeah. So a solid thirty seconds. This is what we're doing now. <laughs> More. He's just. <laughs> That's it. But you know he what I mean? He just didn't want that. He just didn't want that dead. And I mean, he knew that he was different. And he knew that that was special. He did. And so I get it. I I so get it. But the the thing that is amazing to me just in contrast is the sheer scope as I was saying of the Ninth Symphony where there is really not a movement under 10 minutes. So I mean, the the symphony itself is like an hour long, and and the ending to that, even though it has an entire chorus, right? This is the ode to joy. It's this huge epic thing, hour long, blah blah blah. Eighty people singing on ode to joy, ode to joy, and then the ending, it just matches everything i don't know it doesn't go on like that like i feel like the ending to the ninth symphony is way shorter than the ending to the fifth which i don't know so to me ending of the fifth symphony much as i love it too much if i were to know that symphony more like as much as you did yeah i would feel because i you know I, I you listen to 30 seconds and you're like beautiful i couldn't do that i can write that great piccolo throw some lizzo in there to play the piccolo perfect <laughs> but lizzo. yeah I, I guess i can imagine like listening especially to the whole movement and then being like okay already yeah One component that I wanted to speak to, and we've talked quite a bit about this on and off, depending on the wines we're tasting on scores and pours, but we've never actually like gone in depth with volatile acidity, otherwise known as VA. And this is basically volatile acidity is two different compounds that are a result of bacteria. And the main one is acetobacter. And so I'm just going to talk about acetic acid that is a product of acetobacter. Acetic acid is, and pardon me, you know, if you're a scientist and want to call me out, fine. You know, there's like, you look at this stuff and you look at like, I was reading about um, acid hydrolysis of terpenes and I was just like, you know what? Sorry, mom, but fuck this. Like it gets so in depth and I'm not a chemist. So I just do my best. Yeah. Anyway, so acetic acid is what smells like if you pull out vinegar on your shelf, you're smelling 
partially acetic acid, which is like what what makes like a vinegary smell. Yeah. And then if you smell, go and smell some nail polish or nail polish remover, you're smelling ethyl acetate. Those two together combined in, in different, they can be at different percentages, is what we would call VA. And when you have too much VA, obviously you get where I'm going. Your wine either smells like vinegar or it smells like nail polish remover, and it's a spoilage problem. Now, in natural wine, volatile acidity is in every single wine that is going to be not filtered, that's going to have no sulfur added or very little, and that's going to be made with a native fermentation that has nothing added or nothing else taken away. And native ferment meaning you're not adding any packeted yeast. You're going to have VA. And think about VA in, in a healthy way as being like, I use salt in the baked good, but I want to go a step further. I say cinnamon, I say nutmeg, and you immediately think of cookies, brownies. But think of like a good curry. Think of cacao beans. You immediately think of chocolate and brownies. But think of like a good mole, okay, in, in, in Mexican food. VA can be just the right amount of zing to like heighten a lot of different fruit and soil and all these different aromas that you could have at the fore and varietal signatures of wine, meaning like what grapes can smell like. But too much is just too much. And that is a threshold thing. And with natural wine, one thing I've noticed is I have a kind of a medium, medium to high threshold for VA, but there are wines and I'm like, I smell, I just, the fruit is gone now. Now my friend is using all kinds of vocabulary that doesn't really necessarily, it's not <laughs> needed right now. Yeah. And, and what happens is it can, you know, it can arrive when you're not, when you're not sulfuring enough. Or if you're, if you're not going to sulfur, if you pick your grapes too ripe, and then they don't, the pH is too high, meaning the acid is too low because acid is an antioxidant it, or not an antioxidant, but it's, it's a preservative. You know, it helps like thwart bacteria. If you're keeping your wine too warm, let's say you don't have temperature control and your cellar is, you know, 85 degrees, or let's say, oh, you know, that tank over there in the corner, just dump what doesn't fit in this tank, just dump it in there. And your tank is half full half full with no sulfur and no temperature control, just a breeding ground for acetobacter. <laughs> and you're going to have a wine that ends up just not tasting like fruit. It tastes like nail polish remover. And mm. I am a firm believer that as much as my friends say, oh, Jill just likes natty wine and all of her wine can be like all natty and all like... <laughs> I had a friend that was like, the other day I got together for a backyard distancing happy hour and I was like... I texted her and I said, do you want something banal? Do you want something tricked out? Or do you want something, you know, I said something, she was like, what does tricked out mean? <laughs> okay, so you get it. Yeah. Sometimes there can be too natty. And I think that VA, too much VA mm -hmm. is a fault. But then you can have VA in the right way. Like your friend says. It's right. Like Kate says from Division. Just a little bit. Helps like brighten things a little bit. So. VA. In the right way. Should we, should we taste something that is, I think, too much? Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is a, um, a beer that, for right now, I'm not going to mention. All I'm going to say is it's a sour ale with sherbet flavors. And I say this because nowadays, all the rage is, I think, 
a lot of malt beverage, a.k.a. beer, a.k.a. sometimes sour beer. That's like milkshake, IPA, lacto-sugar, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know, they can be really fun. They can be delicious for like a half a beer. But do you really want a tall boy of this shit? I mean, seriously. <laughs> not, this isn't a tall boy. No. But it's a Midwestern produced sour beer that's got some sherbet flavors. It smells like nerds. Yeah, to me it smells like yeah. sweet tarts, so we're there. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. Tastes like kind of like Christmas. I was going to say it tastes like carpet cleaner. Mm. I think like it tastes finish. like Christmas. Yeah. The finish. Not yeah, my finish. favorite, but I don't mind the initial ride, but I, I don't like getting off at the end. Yeah, like the little sour situation. Yeah. yeah, it's like when someone's like, yeah, come on, this this roller coaster isn't so bad. And you're like, okay. You get on and yeah. it's like, they're like, it doesn't go upside down or whatever. You don't get, yeah, okay. I'm not into this. Christmas. But here's the thing. Could I drink a half of one? Because it's kind of like, yeah. oh, no. The finish does taste like sherbet. It tastes like rainbow sherbet that my mm-hmm. brother eats. It does. That's like his favorite ice cream. It's like the weirdest thing in the world. Cream. I know. And it's like it's those sherbet. weird flavors. It's like green, yeah. pink, and orange. Yeah, what is that? I don't know. I don't either. Okay. Well, whatever. So yeah, this whatever. is this is an example of what I think is too much right now in beer mm-hmm. is like the milkshake IPA. And all, it's not to say I don't find them once in a while delicious mm-hmm. or once in a while, oh, de- my delicious is your delightful. Yeah. <laughs> I tolerate them. I yeah. find them interesting. And I find them, like, I want to drink half. I don't want to, like, yeah, this is just, whoa. Do you remember when we were first friends and I told you I didn't like IPAs because they're too hoppy? And so many of them are too hoppy, but some of them get it just right. But IPAs can be too much, I think. And I think that was a whole phase, too. Everybody's like, IPA this, IPA that. Do you have any more for too much, too much for music? Because if not, I can just keep whining or beer. I mean, we could give Tchaikovsky another shout-out for the end of the 1812 Overture, which has effing cannons. <laughs> yes. Do that. <laughs> I mean, Yes, do that, I mean, please. do I even need to say any more? Like, we can just listen to the end with cannons. Were they really, like, yes. real cannons? yes. Like on stage or something. Yeah. Okay, well, let's listen to that for right. sure. And just, you know, apologies. I don't mean to pick on Tchaikovsky so much. He hated this piece, by the way. <laughs> he hated it. He hated it. I like this piece probably more than he did. So the thing is that <laughs> Tchaikovsky 1812 Overture, yes, it commemorates certain battles. Uh, and it's it's got can- – it calls for cannons in the score – like an artillery of cannons, if possible, or other field artillery as appropriate. And we found a recording that as cannons, the thing is, I know from just dealing with a lot of people who record audio professionally for video games, that getting a recording of a cannon is almost ridiculous. Like you can't, <laughs> it's just, guns are, guns in general, it's like, if you go take a, it's too the loud. most expensive mic, yeah, it's just way too loud. So these cans <laughs> in this recording are ridiculous, and we're going to listen to it. Here we, you found, go. we found one that had, like, a <laughs> bass drum instead, and it was, like, sounded really, really good, yeah. legit, but not like this. Not like okay, this, ready? yeah. Too much at the end of a symphony. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> 
Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Bells. Chimes. The whole thing, Jesus. Cathedral. Not only the cannons, but the whole, like, chimes situation at the, the end. The whole chimes is amazing. And the <sighs> my favorite, I used to say, wow. when I worked for the classical station, I would read this quote on the air that Tchaikovsky said about this piece. He had a um, patron named Nadezhda von Meck for many, many years, and they corresponded often. And Do you mean he, a patron that, like, visited yeah. him and, like... Well, and gave him like, money gave him, and okay. funded his projects okay. and things. And she did that with many... She was a patron of the arts, truly. She okay. was a remarkable person. And, uh, I mean, I can't speak to her personality. She might have been a terrible person, but she funded a lot of great artistic okay. endeavors, including Tchaikovsky. And he wrote her and he said that the overture is very loud and noisy, but without artistic merit because I wrote it without warmth and without love. <laughs> now, when I you, just, I think my, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, when you juxtapose that quote, that he wrote this piece without warmth and without love, and almost at the same time, he then wrote his Serenade for Strings, which is one of the most beautiful and tender and endearing pieces you'll ever find in all of string orchestra writing. So my last thing I'm going to talk about in wine today is an interesting thing that I don't find necessarily too much, except for when it's too much. So I guess just like VA. All yeah. right. And just like New Oak. We've talked on the show about Riesling, the grape Riesling, quite a few times. Mm -hmm. And a, a grape that I adore almost more than life itself, but I won't go there. Riesling smells like, if you talk to any wine professional and say, name me five descriptors of Riesling, one of those descriptors is going to be petrol. Yes, petrol like gasoline. But we don't mean it in a, like, go to the gas station, spilt gas on the side of your car or on the floor. Like, it does kind of smell like fusel, like oil like that, but mm -hmm. not that intense right yeah yeah it's yeah. got this like it's you know it's surrounded and coddled by all these different fruit aromas and esters and petrol what it is is it's for short they call it tdn and i'm looking at my notes so i can pronounce it right it's a compound we call tdn and it's 116 trimethyl dash one two dihydronephthalene <laughs> TD, TDN, folks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and what I find interesting is this compound yields itself. Usually it's after bottling. So in barrels, you'll taste it, or in tanks, you'll taste it, but not as much as after it's bottled. Now, what's fascinating is I used to work at this wine shop that had an extensive collection. I used to buy wines, German and Austrian wines, for a shop in Chicago that I had like a gazillion skews and it was like amazing and I learned so much about German and Austrian wines but we had a ton of Riesling both dry and some sweet 
But then you learn about Riesling from all over the world because your other homie buys Australian and New Zealand Rieslings. Other friends buy American Rieslings, and we'd get together, and people would bring us stuff to taste. And time in and time out, when I was going for my sommelier certificate, I was like, holy buckets. New Zealand Riesling tastes like petrol before it's even born. I mean, not really, <laughs> but like you smell it in the glass, and it it could be a let's say right now, a 2019 vintage, and you'd be like, it just already smells like gas way more than it does all the different fruits that come with it. And and that's something that doesn't necessarily happen in Germany. Germany can take, you know, two, five, 10, 50 years. Alsace can take, it's, that's so surrounded by like so many fruits and richness that that's just, that's a whole nother, like, New Zealand, it just happens right away. And so you're blind tasting Riesling and you're like, well, that's New Zealand. That's New Zealand. You can point. Okay. <laughs> and 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 what what's interesting is so this can happen because of ripeness. Like when your grapes are really phenolic, we've talked about a couple episodes ago, we talked about Riesling v- being very terpene rich. And this TDN happens as a result of acid hydrolysis of those terpenes. Okay. So it's technically, as I understand it, it may not be a terpene, but it's like something that happens to the terpenes makes that happen. And so if your grape is really ripe, there's a possibility, which in New Zealand, there's plenty of sunshine. They say that it can happen with high light exposure, lots of effing sunshine in New Zealand, been there, Sun, worst sunburn of my life, well, second worst sunburn of my life. And <laughs> if you knew me, you knew that my skin is dark and I don't get sunburned. True. But in Germany, it was like, there is a lot of sun, of course, but it's not like New Zealand. And then you also like very warm soils. Well, of course, if you have high sunlight exposure, you have warm soils. Yeah. It can do divine stress if you're not irrigating. Now, in New Zealand, those people are like irrigating at noon in a, on a summer day. Wow. And you're like, why are you, why are you, yeah. why are you, why are you doing that? But that can be a lack of irrigation and a stress on the vine can be a reason that that happens. Hmm. But I digress. Yeah. It happens often in New Zealand and it's to a point where it's, it's sort of hard to get to fruit. Like it's cool that you can smell it and be like, wow, that's New Zealand. But it gets to be a point where if you're trying to figure out what's the difference between Central Otago and Martinborough and Marlborough and all these cool little places, Hawke's Bay, Nelson, well, if it, I mean, yes, you can get there, but I, I was working at a biodynamic farm and vineyard and I was drinking Riesling, New Zealand Riesling, almost on the daily, which is amazing. Hmm. And that was really hard to get past. It was like, it really, you had to build up a tolerance for that before you could start getting into soils and getting into, you know, which I even just trying to get to which island, north or south, the reason was from. And so that to me, that is something that can be, I don't want to say as as, it's not a fault, not in the least, but that can be too much when TDN is too high that you're getting nothing else in Riesling. And I mean, just a little fun fact Riesling covers only 2% of vineyard area in in the world in, or in New, New Zealand. Zealand. Okay. And it, which is about like 760 hectares, so like not a lot. Yeah. Cuz in Germany, 
it's 23,000 hectares. Wow. So like Germany, they've been growing it a long time. They know how to deal with it. Its spiritual home is there. Yeah. And it's a fairly new thing in New Zealand. And New Zealand hasn't been making wine for, you know. Hundreds of years. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know, just a little interesting fact. I thought you, you guys thought I was going to get all natty and go on all natty types of routes. <laughs> and I just wanted to talk about 116 trimethyl 1-2-dihydronephthalene. <laughs> if I get a tattoo in life, that's what it'll say. And only big <laughs> no. geeks will know. <laughs> They'll be like, whoa. So, and for me, likewise, it would have been super easy to talk about a Mahler symphony that's an hour and a half long or, you know, Richard Wagner's opera cycle called the Ring Cycle that's 23 hours long. I could have talked about these things, but that seemed like that'd be where a lot of people would go when they're talking about too much. (laughs) No, I'm glad you talked about these because I think, you know, a lot of people wouldn't know that the 1812 had the cannons and that the, yeah, knowing how much you love the fifth. Love it. You still think? There's a small piece that's a There's too much. There's just is one much. little minor. Fl- it's like a hair coming out of a mole. Like you love the mole because it's a. You know what I mean? It's like a. It's <laughs> oh like God, the, the, the perfect personality trait, except for the little hair. Yeah. Oh, that's. We've never had that one on scores and pores before. But that's kind of like my affection for riesling. Yes. And even the petrol in riesling, I abs- I adore. It's awesome. It's yeah. one of the weird kind of quirky things about riesling. Yet, just let's not have that TDNB. Yeah, out there. Yeah. Well, I love it. Here's to, um, I was going to talk about too little, but I don't think I'll talk about that today. I was going to talk about flabby wines and I'll just say it. I don't like flabby wines. Just keep your ass up there, people. We'll do too little. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. That cheers was definitely not too much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We would urge you to look us up on the gram. Our handle is at scoresandpours, spelled out. And there you can also message us any questions you may have regarding wine, beer, spirits, and of course, classical music. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music, especially since so many of them can't even perform shows right now. Wah, wah, <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. Edited by Emily Reese and Joe Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. <laughs>